That's what I'm talking about. We got y'all. Y'all gonna be wide awake today. That's gonna be good, man. I am. I'm excited. Not just about this morning, but just God's been doing some cool stuff this week, and we'll touch on some of that. Some of it we we won't. You'll hear about those things in the future. But um, it's good to good to be with you guys this morning. Last week we celebrated Easter. In case you missed it somehow, yeah, last week was Easter. If you missed it, it's okay. Jesus still loves you. That's kind of the message of Easter. Um, but I want to I say thank you um, as we kind of get started this morning. Two weeks ago, I asked you guys to, you know, get up early and be here and be prepared to receive guests, and y'all did that, and it was wonderful. And everybody pitched in, not just being here early, but making our guests feel welcome and helping with everything, and it was so good. And I want to say thank you to you guys. That is, that's a big deal, and it's a, it's a big part of how we love like Jesus. So thank you guys for, for doing that. Um, if you were out of town last week, good news, we paused our series and we focused on Christ's le- life, death, and resurrection, um, and specifically how it makes it possible for us to be made whole again. We talked about how all of us are born separated from God, but because of Jesus, we now have a way to be reunited with God, and that missing peace that we all experience in our lives, that peace we find in Jesus, and so that, that part of us that didn't feel quite right, what we talked about last week, is now made whole because we know Jesus. So today we're going to pick up um, with uh, chapter 5, which is entitled Self-Giving. If you're reading along right now, you know that this is the last chapter, but don't worry, we still got at least one more sermon in this series. Um, the last one's going to, we're going to talk about how we accomplish all that we've discussed in this series. If we just look at this book as a to-do list, um, we're going to be very uh, daunted and very quickly disappointed in ourselves, Right? We know that the answer to all of this is abiding, and we're going to spend a whole Sunday next week talking about that. Um, Amy just started reading The Abiding Cycle, and so she was reading a quote to us this morning on the way to church out of the introduction where it talks about uh, the whole point of us knowing Christ is to abide in Him, not to just come up with a new list of rules. And so I don't want us to look at this book and go, okay, here's my new checklist. This is how we're going to, this is how we're going to do church. Um, these things that we've talked about the last five weeks are a part of who we are as Christ lives in us and through us. And I want to make sure that we all understand that. So we'll talk more about that next week. Um, as I, I mentioned each week, whether you're part of the church or not, something inside of us gravitates toward having better relationships, better marriages, better friendships, better family relationships. In fact, we don't look for the solutions. Um, we look for solutions in all of those relationships, right? When they, when they are challenged, if it's somebody that we care about, we look for a solution. Who wouldn't want to have better relationships or a better work environment, better school environment? I'd like to get along better with everybody, including those that may consider me their enemy. We're in a series called Love Like That, and each week we've been emphasizing what we already know. None of us have arrived yet, right? None of us are perfect like Jesus, but we're moving in that direction. And we're trying to figure this out, and we want to get it right because the stakes are high. We talk about that every week. I say that same phrase every week in this series because the stakes are high. Because we know that what we're learning right now, whatever stage of life you're in, is going to have a generational impact. Whether you're a grandparent, you are going to be able to teach these things to your grandchildren. Or maybe you're a parent now and you're going to teach these to your children. Or maybe you don't have children yet, but you've got a lot of littles around you in your life. You're going to have an opportunity to show them what it means to truly be loved, love the way that Jesus does. And that's a big deal. That's weighty. That's, that's got a lot of heft to it. And so we want to make sure that we get this right. Our theme passage for this series is Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Let's read that again together. This is out of the message translation. 
It says, watch what God does and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. That idea of giving is what we're going to be talking about today. Loving like Jesus involves being mindful. It involves being approachable. It involves being full of grace and graceful with others. It involves being bold, but it also involves, includes being self-giving. There's two passages I want us to unpack today. The first is from some of the last words and actions of Jesus before he goes to die on the cross for us. It's the most incredible example and illustration of what it means to be self-giving. It's found in John chapter 13. The second passage actually gives us a clear definition of humility and a way to make a part of our daily routines. When we talk about humility, that can sometimes have negative connotations. And I want us to understand as we jump into this this morning, that when we talk about humility, it's not about thinking less of ourselves, but thinking more of other people. Okay, that is, our, that is the avenue in which we're going to begin to think about self-giving today. It's not about thinking less of ourselves, but thinking more about others. So let's get started. Okay, so this passage we're about to read in John chapter 13, this is just moments, hours before Jesus dies on the cross. Here we find the perfect picture of self-giving. Okay, so first, we're, today we're going to talk about the who. Here's the who, it's Jesus, okay? So John chapter 13, let's start with verse 1. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In this, in this passage, we get a clear picture of Jesus' love beginning in the first verse. Jesus knew what this was. He knew that his hour had come. And knowing all things, he was clearly aware that he had precious few hours left before his death. Final hours bring final words. Those, whose, those words tend to carry a great deal of weight. When death is near, there's no time for wasted words. You've seen this in every movie where someone's been killed, right? There's that little whisper at the end just before they give their last breath. And it's always, you can't quite hear it. Maybe it's a little gurgly. But the, the director wants to key in because it's always something significant, right? It's like the key to the mystery. If it's a James Bond movie, it's the answer to whatever the scenario is in that movie. Final words are significant. In the book, he, the author references uh, David Cassidy. Um, he's a little before my time, but he's an American actor and singer known for the Partridge Family. Raise your hand, your hand if you've watched more than three episodes of the Partridge Family ever. Okay, all right, now we're all, we know who's who. Okay. Right before he dies, he's with his family, and he says, so much wasted time. Those were his last words. Surely a statement of regret and challenge to make the most of a person's life. You know, we just talked about how significant it is to love people well. And Jesus, in his last moment, takes the time to say, hey, I love you, and this is important for you to understand. Words can... Can, last words can carry the weight of guilt or regret, or they can help lead others to a deeper understanding of life and challenge us to navigate that life wisely. And we don't learn that by discussing it, right? We discover that through actions of love. 
If any of you in the room have experienced a major illness, and most of us have, or at least been in close proximity with someone who has, we know that those brushes with death change the way you see the world, right? From my own personal experience, when Bethany went through what she went through with chemo and all of that, it changed me. It made me no longer look at just things as important, but experiences with people. That's what's most important to me. And that didn't happen because I thought one day, you know what would make me a better person? Is to value people more than stuff. That changed in me because something happened in my life that was significant. And so as Jesus is sitting with his disciples, something significant is happening. I believe that this moment for Jesus was no different than that. His friends, his companions, his disciples are here with him for one last Passover, one final supper. After spending three years with his close friends, this band of brothers, it was time to say goodbye. And over the course of time, they had learned so much. Jesus had taught them many things regarding the kingdom of God, and some understood and some didn't. But because it was his time uh, for departure, he saved some of his most significant teachings for the upper room and just for those that are closest to him, his disciples. He didn't have this conversation with the masses. He had this conversation with those that he knew the best. And he's revealing new truths to them that he hasn't shared with them before. He talks about his love for them and how it continues to the very end. His public ministry is over now. And with this focused intensity of one final meal and final words, he teaches us how to live in a self-giving way. So let's look at this story. We're going to look at verses 2 through 5 and pay close attention to how Jesus spends these last moments. It says, it was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. At this moment, Jesus stops everything that's going on, And he puts all the focus, not on himself, on his disciples. We're reminded that all power and authority are Jesus's. It's in this context that Jesus puts this towel around his waist and he washes his disciples' feet. It's crazy. Think about how shocking this is. It's shocking on multiple levels. Jesus, who was with God in creation who has all and power and authority over everything. These men saw Jesus stop a storm with only his words. Kneels before them and washes their feet. John records these examples in his Gospels of the fact that for three years, these men men began to know that Jesus was the Son of God. Look at these examples. John chapter 5, verses 17 18. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began to try all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Or John chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me, and you know where I am from, yet I have not come on my own. But the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Or John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Or John chapter 10, verse 30, 
I and the Father are one. The Jewish people understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. And that's why the reason, one of the reasons they sought to kill him. If they had misunderstood him, if Jesus was saying all these things and they had just misunderstood him, Jesus would have been like, hold on guys, I think you've misunderstood me. That's not what I'm saying. But Jesus didn't do that. They understood clearly. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. And that's what makes this demonstration of humility so shocking. The God of creation, the God who spoke all things into existence, would humble himself by doing the lowly act of washing the feet of the disciples. An act reserved in the culture for servants or the lowest classes of people. In fact, Jewish slaves were not even required to wash the feet of their masters. But the God of creation knelt and washed his disciples' feet. You've heard this before, I'm sure, or you've worn sandals in your life before, I'm sure. We, um, we have a, a scenario in my house we call crock feet. Some of you with little kids know what crock feet is. It's when a child has worn crocs all day outside, and they come inside, and their feet look like they've been barefoot all day, and you set them in the bathtub, and there's brown footprints everywhere. Anybody had crock feet in your house? Yep, on the floors. Yep, okay. That's what is happening here. In, in Jewish culture, it was normal, it was a regular practice to wash your feet before you ate. Now, we wash our hands, right? We never thought about washing our feet. And the reason they washed their feet is because they didn't sit at tables like we do. They sat on the floor and there was a small inclined table and so their feet were up near the food. And so it was important to wash your feet before you had a meal. And also, stinky feet next to food, not appetizing, right? Okay? It was important. It was significant. It was a normal part of life. And so Jesus gets up. They had just sat at the table and he gets up and begins to wash the disciples' feet. He's doing the work of the lowest in society. The disciples had to have been stunned by that, right? We know they are. Even though they hadn't fully understood the fullness of Jesus' identity yet, they knew that this was below him, that this was something reserved for others. As we look at his life, we say, they shouldn't have been surprised, right? But they were. Look at Matthew chapter 20 through 28. It says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' act of self-giving and humility was actually a foreshadowing of the ultimate act of humility and love that he would express for all of us on the cross. Jesus' self-giving attitude was in direct contrast to that of the disciples who had recently been arguing among themselves about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God and who would sit at his side. That's us, y'all. We're always thinking about how good we're doing and what position we ought to hold. That's the opposite of what Jesus is doing. In John chapter 13, if we go on in verses 6 and 7, it said, He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Y'all, I can identify with Peter on this one. Like, whoa, hold on. (laughs) No, not my feet. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. Peter's statement clearly shows that he didn't have a clue what Jesus was doing. Even Jesus tells Peter at this time, you don't know what I'm doing, but just, you will, just pay attention. The implication here is that there's more to Jesus washing the feet than just the hygiene issue. There's something more going on. Peter doesn't get it yet, but he's going to. Here's another indication Peter understand Jesus' act of self-giving love. It goes on to say in verses 8 through 11, you will never wash my feet, Peter said. And Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one who would betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Look, Peter loved Jesus. There's no doubt about that. So when Jesus says this is necessary, he's like, all right, wash me all then. I like the attitude, but he's missing the point. There's a deeper meaning found in this act of humility. Peter had come to know who Jesus was. He didn't have a full understanding of salvation until Pentecost, but he didn't need to be washed again in a spiritual sense. Salvation is justification before God by faith. There's also a process of sanctification in growing in depth of our understanding of love for God. Look what he continues to say in verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me a teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is no greater than his master, and a messenger is no greater than the one who sent him. So here's the picture that Jesus gives when he washed his disciples' feet. What they've just experienced and witnessed is to be replicated over and over again. Don't just talk about servanthood and humility. you got to do it. If we call ourselves his followers, we are to imitate him, serving one another in humility and building up one another in love. When we have the servant's heart, the Lord promised, we'll be greatly blessed. But the only way we get that is by walking in obedience to what Jesus has told us to do, which is to serve one another. So how do we do that? That's the second part of the message. Here's the how. We're going to break this down into four key postures that we see Paul describe in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Those verses say, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. I love in the book, um, Les Parrott talks about the golden rule and the silver rule. If you read that, you'll remember, what is the golden rule? Anybody? Yeah, that was really good. Do unto others as you would have them do for you. And there are other religions who have similar rules, and they're called the, the, the silver rule because they all have a negative connotation. They're all, don't respond in this way when someone responds to you in that way. Whereas the golden rule is proactive. We're going to do to other people as we would like to have done to ourselves. So the first thing that we can do in order to, to be self-giving is don't be selfish. Kids go to all sorts of extremes not to share. If you've got little ones, you know all about these, okay? They'll hide their toys, right? They'll lie. They'll leave the room if they don't want to share what they have. They'll fight. You get the idea. But here's the thing. We're like that too. Christians are not to have selfish motives. Although no verb appears in the Greek text, Paul's statement has the force of a negative command. The word he uses for selfishness is sometimes translated to strife. Because, listen to this, selfishness puts a person at war with other people. I want you to marinate on that for just a minute that your selfishness puts you at war with other people. It refers to factionalism, rivalry, partisanship. If you look at Galatians 5.20, it lists all these things that are works of flesh, and selfishness is in there. Selfishness is egotism, a personal desire to advance oneself 
that is always destructive and disruptive. Now, you got to be careful when saying the word always, but I think it applies here this time. Loving like Jesus starts with slaying the giant of selfishness. It involves getting rid of the consuming and destructive pride rooted deep within us. It's what prompts us to push for our own way and seek to fulfill our own agendas. The second thing we can do is don't be conceited. I don't know why, but when I read these first two, um, you know the TikTok trend, don't be suspicious, don't be suspicious. That's, don't be conceited. Don't be, that'll be our new, our new song, okay? This word translated as empty conceit or vain conceit is used only here in the New Testament, okay? It's found only in this one spot. The King James Version, which I know we all read in our quiet time, translates it as vain glory, okay? It, it refers to seeking after personal glory. Selfishness describes someone's pursuing an enterprise in a factional way, but empty or vain conceit specifies the desired result, which is personal glory. The key word here is pride. Pride is what makes me independent of God. It's one of the sources of separation that we discussed last week. Sin separates us from God, but pride keeps us separated because we put the focus on ourselves. It's appealing to me to, to feel that I'm the master of my own fate, right? That I run my life and that I'm in control, that I call my own shots and I go at it the way I want to. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone and neither can you. We weren't created to do that. Others have said, like, it's amazing that we can accomplish what we can accomplish when we're not concerned with who gets the credit. You know, I've, I've shared with you guys before how much I really enjoy working at Petron. And I've told, with you, told you before, it's not necessarily the work. The work that I do is fun, but it's the people that I get to do with it. And as I was reading this chapter this week and thinking about that, it dawned on me that this is a major reason why I feel that way. Because those that are on the management team are not in it for their own glory. All of the guys that I work with on the management team are there to do a really good job because it makes us feel good to know that we've taken care of the customer. And at the end of the day, what makes us who we are is the fact that we've done the best that we can do for our company and for the customer. And when we're all moving in that direction, when the, when the goal is not to make ourselves look good, but to make our company look good, we feel like we're on the same team, that we're a cohesive unit. You know what it's like, though, to do the opposite of that, right? We've worked, in, all of us, I'm sure, have worked in environments where everybody that's there is there for their own personal glory, and it's miserable because you feel like you're fighting all the time. We feel at war, right, like we talked about a while ago. There's a new guy that just started with our company a couple of months ago, and he came from an environment, a work environment that was extremely competitive and harsh, and it's such a joy to see it wash over him every time he realizes that he's not in that environment anymore. And honestly, he's not sure what to do with that. It makes him feel a little weird because it's not normal. Many of us over the years have sung the popular song, Take Over by Shane and Shane. Y'all remember that song? We've sung it in here a bunch. The lyrics to the bridge have always jumped out at me. And they address the emotion that comes when we realize that we've been living for ourselves instead of God. In the, in the bridge, it says, what am I supposed to do with all my kingdoms next to you? You're the Lord. I could gain the world and more, and it's all nothing next to you. You're my reward. If we spend our lives focused on ourselves, we're going to build up kingdoms for us, kingdoms that will fall and fail. 
But if we can learn to love like Jesus and to put others ahead of ourselves, to put their own needs in front of our own needs, life is going to be different. Third thing we can do is regard others as more important than yourself. Humility or humility of mind translates from one word in, in Greek text of Philippians 2 and 3. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important from yourselves. It's apparent that the, the New Testament writers coined this phrase because it's not found in any of the previous uh, ancient writings. The adjective form of this word was used in other Greek writings to describe the mentality of a slave. It conveyed the idea of being a base or shabby or low or common. It was a term of mockery, not one of virtue. In the pre-New Testament pagan world thought of humility as something that was ugly, never to be sought after, and certainly never to be admired. But in the Old Testament, God commends humility. It says he chose humble people to do his work. He saved the lowly and the meek. He hears the prayers of the downcast and gives grace to the lowly. So where humility is an affirmed virtue in the Old Testament, it was not viewed that way in the pagan world. And I think the same is true today. The writers of the New Testament were introducing their previously pagan readers to an entirely new concept. Paul defines humility of mind as regarding one another as more important than ourselves. We're to think of others in the church as superior to us. Yes, that's often the opposite way that we think. For example, we're often quick to speak of the faults and the failures of others. Generally, we can only guess what's in the heart of another person. A wife may say to her husband, I know what you were thinking, right, wives? And she may or may not be right. If she's wrong, the husband's going to be frustrated. And if she's right, he's going to be even more frustrated. But it's generally true that the only sin or grace we know of another person is what we see or hear, right? Yet there's one heart we all know very well, and that's our own. That was Paul's attitude. We would probably say, Paul, you're the greatest Christian who ever lived. But Paul himself said, I am the least of the apostles, whom I am not fit to be called an apostle. And then he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. According to his own knowledge of himself, Paul knew that he was the worst sinner ever. And because of what we know of ourselves, we should adopt the same attitude towards ourselves. That should give us a different opinion of other people when we see ourselves for who we are. Number four, don't look out only for your own interest. We live in a society where most people care only about their personal interest. We're told to love ourselves, to focus on ourselves, or even worship ourselves. Or as Parks and Rec put it, go ahead and throw that up there. Treat yourself. <laughs> but that only pours gasoline on the fire of human pride. Christians aren't to regard their personal enterprises as their only goals in life. We're to be passionately involved in the causes of others. Often there's a conflict because people are involved only with their piece of the pie. And they don't see the big picture. When Paul says personal interest, he's speaking about legitimate ministry interests. Those goals that honor the Lord and are part of the responsibilities of all Christians. Those things are important. But our interest needs to extend to the interests of others. I think Paul meant that while we're busy tending to our responsibilities and other things on our hearts, we also need to be concerned about the matters that concern those around us. 
And I, I want to pause right here and say that I've talked a lot about Central Louisiana Interfaith, and I'm excited about what God's doing that. And this is why I've been so excited about it, because it's putting me around a group of other people who love their communities. And what is concerning to them as a believer ought to be concerning to me. Even if they're not a believer, what's concerning to them ought to be concerning to me. We talked this week about the shootings that happened last week and on Easter evening. And that is significant. And what happens in Alexandria should be concerning to all of us. Church, if we are to call ourselves believers, the things that happen around us should matter to us. The interest, enterprises, needs, tasks, goals, gifts, spiritual character, ministries, quality, strength, the list can go on and on. All of those things need to be considered of equal importance to our own interest. And that's a high standard to live by. There's no room in the Christian church for competitive strategies. It's counterproductive. You know, Les doesn't bring this up, but I was thinking about this this morning. We've talked about this before. If I am, we've talked about this in context of relationships and marriage. If I am focused on my own needs only, whose needs are going to get met? Maybe mine, right? But in the context of a, a Christian marriage or relationship, if I am more concerned with the needs of my partner than I am with my own, her needs are going to get met. And guess what happens? She's going to reciprocate that. But if I'm only focused on me and she's only focused on her, we're just going to be mad at each other all the time. Some of you are chuckling. You've probably been there. But the church operates the same way. In the context of our local body, if I'm only concerned with what I need, then all of you are going to feel like I don't care about you. Right? But if all of us are concerned with one another, all of our needs are going to be met. We're going to felt heard and valued. That's what the church is supposed to be about. And that's the heart of what Jesus is saying here. That in order to love like him, we've got to put others above ourselves. I want to end with this last illustration. There was a 36-year-old woman who discovered she, had, discovered she had terminal cancer. The doctor told her to spend her last days enjoying herself in Acapulco. The second doctor offered hope of living two or three years with grueling side effects of chemotherapy and radiation. And she wrote these words to her three small children. She said, I have chosen to try and survive for you. This has come at horrible cost, including pain, loss of my good humor, and moods I won't be able to control, but I must try this. If only on the outside chance that I may live one minute longer, and that minute could be the one that you might need me when no one else will do. For this I intend to struggle tooth and nail, so help me God. That's what it means to be self-giving. Put the value of others' lives ahead of your own. In church, I am no fool. That is hard. And next week, that's why I want to take another week and for us to talk about what that looks like for us. How do we do that? How do we get ourselves, how do I get myself, a guy who is prone to selfishness, to move my heart in a completely different direction and put the values and the importance of other people's lives ahead of my own? That's hard, and I ain't figured it out yet, but we're going to do that together. If the church lives by the standard of conduct God set for us, we will eliminate both competitiveness and decisiveness. We will become one, not just our church, but other churches as well. God's standard is high, and the only one who ever lived to that perfection was Jesus
and he's our model. Look at the end of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the, illness, the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. If we're going to love like Jesus, we have to live like Jesus. That's a tall order. We're going to talk about that next week. But don't, start, don't wait till next week to start considering what this might look like in your life. Take this week to have some conversations with God. Ask him to reveal the areas of your life where you're living selfishly. And ask him to begin to deal with your heart in those areas of your life. This is not a checklist. It's a relationship. Have some conversations. Let God do the work that he needs to do in your life. And I'm going to do the same. Let's pray. God, I'm very challenged by your message today. I know that it's so hard for me to get outside of myself. Even this morning, as I was preparing for this sermon, God, I was so worried about my own things. God, I ask that you would work in my heart to change me to be more like you. Father, I ask the same thing for my brothers and sisters in this room, that you would work in our hearts this week, God, to reveal the areas where we are prone to look out only for ourselves. God, and show us opportunities where we can invest where we can love like you show us opportunities in the lives of our brothers and sisters our co-workers our friends where we can step in and uplift them to live for them jesus do this work in all of our hearts in your name we pray amen